Network's new podcasting space. This allows us to expand our programming with more on-demand programs so you can listen when you want or download them at any time. Area 941 is just another reason why people say, I heard it on KPFA. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of sight this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is January the 17th, 2017. <laughs> nice numbers, yes, one, seventeen, seven. Uh. Okay, today I have with me a pile of books been accumulating next to my bed I keep digging through trying to find some if not answers some ways to understand our oh, history um I guess I think most of this stuff is centered around Barack Obama uh, the president we are losing uh I have here his autobiography, Dreams from My Father. Uh, that goes uh, on my shelf right next to uh, other literary, literary works, right? Um, Barack is a genuine literary uh, dude. Let's see. James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. Richard Wright's Black Boy. Oh, mess of things. Uh uh, Huey Newton's, uh, Huey Newton's, uh, Revolutionary Suicide, that's the one, and of course Malcolm X. Um. Okay, yes, uh, <laughs> the book that I focused on today is David Remnick's biography, it's called The Bridge, The Bridge, and of course, uh, it's a tome, it's nearly 600 pages about the life and rise of Barack Obama, and it's titled The Bridge because uh, it's about uh, the bridge from Martin Luther King, whose birthday we celebrated yesterday, and Barack Obama. 
how these things came to be, how the Moses generation created or made way for the Joshua generation. They like to, to you know, uh, mytho poets. Yes, uh, Bob Dylan says that uh, Barack Obama is a mytho poetic figure. Uh, I, I I buy it. Yes, um, if you are a lover of fiction, the way I am, you're always looking for, you know, metaphors. Now, when reality <laughs> turns into um, that big, what is it? That great leap. It's like Homer and things. You know, um, does it matter whether it's real? Of course, it matters. Uh, uh yes, Abraham Lincoln is a real real uh, poet, uh, poetic uh, myth, legend, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think, um, well, the last of the Moses generation will be at uh, the inauguration this Friday, John Lewis. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I want to read you a little bit from the uh, the uh, book by David Remnick. He's the editor of the New Yorker, by the way. Uh, the bits about John Lewis are very meaningful because, of course, John Lewis, um, he's not just the last remaining member, the last guy that was on the stage back in uh, the day. Uh, he's the most radical of that crowd. Uh, anyway, yes, the Moses generation and John Lewis. First of all, I have a quote from the poet uh, Gene Toomer, great uh, African-American poet. He writes, In my body were many bloods, some dark blood, all blended in the fire of six or more generations. I was then either a new type of man or the very oldest. In any case, I was inescapably myself. Now, Barack's autobiography is a, uh, a journey, an effort to find his self, his deepest self, uh, I love the parts where he's still Barry. That's B-A-R-R-Y. He's still Barry. And then he becomes Barack at some point. He chooses to be a black American. Uh, it's so interesting. Uh, this stuff is, what is it? It's not just complex. It seems to be eternal. Uh, anyway, uh, let's see. Where's the bit here? I have the bit about... John Lewis that I think tells us more than uh, more than most people know. Let's see. Uh, Lewis, right. Lewis says Barack was born long after he could experience or understand the movement. Uh, <laughs> anyway, this is a description of Barack Obama at his own inauguration. Uh, he says he's not nervous. He says everything's cool. And David Remnick's book, 
goes on. Let's read a chapter here, a little paragraph. Uh, After absorbing the blast of cold and the thudding roar from the mall, Barack Obama glanced to his right, spotted on the steps a few feet away, John Lewis. Squat, bald, hatless, the 11-term representative of Georgia's 5th Congressional District and the only one of the speakers at the 1963 march on Washington still alive. Obama bent to embrace him. Congratulations, Mr. President, Lewis whispered in his ear. Obama smiled at the sound of that and said, Thank you, John. I'll need your prayers. You'll have them, Mr. President, that and all my support. Uh, Now, at the March on Washington, King's speech was the most eloquent. John Lewis's the most radical. John Lewis was just 23 at the time. He was the leader of SNCC. That's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In the original draft of his speech, his demand for racial justice and serious revolution was so fearless that in the last minutes before the program began, Dr. King, Bayard Rustin, Roy Wilkins, other movement organizers negotiated with him, with Lewis, to remove any phrases that might offend the Kennedy administration. Lewis planned to say, We will march through the South, through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did. We shall pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground nonviolently. We shall fragment the South into a thousand pieces and put them back together in the image of democracy. Well, he had to lose that bit about Sherman's army, but the rest of that text, uh, capped by its final warning, we will not be patient, left no doubt about John Lewis or about the audacious generation that he represented. Two years later, in Selma, John Lewis led the march at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Uh, He went straight into a blockade set up by Alabama state troopers. The first nightstick, wielded in anger, landed on his skull. At the White House that night, Lyndon Johnson watched it all on television. He deepened his uh, resolve to push the Voting Rights Act. The day before Obama's inauguration, (laughs) which came just after what would have been King's 80th birthday, Lewis told me, that is me, David Remnick, told me at his office in the Cannon House office building, Barack Obama is what comes at the end of that bridge in Selma. 
Okay, inaugural weekend had been bewildering to John Lewis. It is almost too much, he said, too emotional. Uh, Lewis had told parishioners that uh, he would have thought that only a crazy person would predict the election of an African-American president in his lifetime. But now he was sure that the masses on the wall would be joined by the saints and angels and by Harriet Tubman and Carter G. Woodson, Marcus Garvey, W.E.B. Du Bois, Nat Turner, Frederick Douglass, John Brown, Sojourner Truth, and on and on for hours. Lewis greeted constituents at his office. He handed out inaugural tickets. My footnote here is, I wonder how many tickets he's got for Friday. No, 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 I don't want to talk about that. When Lewis shook people's hands, he could feel that they were still freezing from the hours they had spent in long lines outside. He ordered them coffee, hot chocolate, sandwiches, donuts. After a while, he set off to visit them all, moving, it seemed, in the days of unreality. He could scarcely believe the size of the crowds gathering so early, especially the great numbers of African Americans, young and old, and many of them from distant places. As John Lewis walked around the mall greeting people, posing for hundreds of photographs, a young man introduced himself as the police chief of Rock Hill, South Carolina. Lewis smiled incredulously. Imagine that, he said. I was beaten near to death at the Rock Hill Greyhound bus terminal during the Freedom Bus Rides in 1961, and now the police chief is black. One teenage boy sweetly asked, Mr. Lewis, my mama says you marked with Dr. King. Is that true? Like an old fighter who is not displeased to recount tales of ancient battle, Lewis nodded and said, well, yes, he had, and perhaps for the 5,000th time, he sketched the journey from Selma to Montgomery. Yes, that's when he said that Barack was born long before he could experience or understand the movement. Lois said he was heading back to the capital, and he went on to say he had to move toward it in his own time. But it is so clear that he had digested it, the spirit and the language of the movement. The way he made it his own reminds me of a trip I made to South Africa in March 1994, before the post-apartheid elections. We met with a few leaders of the African National Congress, young people. Despite their age, they knew everything about the late 50s and 60s in the American South, about the birth of the civil rights movement. They were using the same rhetoric. They had the same emotional force. One young South African actor got up and recited a poem by a black slave woman from Georgia. Now, that's the way it is with Barack. 
he has absorbed the lessons and spirit of the civil rights movement. But at the same time, he doesn't have the scars of the movement. He has not been knocked around as much by the past. And this section goes on. I wanted to read you some more of it. Um, it's so fascinating. The, uh, the autobiography that Barack wrote, you know, Dreams from My Father, I was listening to the tapes last night. He himself reads it. I wanted to play some of that for you, and I, I will soon. Uh, what struck me was that he may not have been knocked around, at least his didn't have his head bashed in, but he certainly had what I would call uh, 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 an education. An education. Uh, I liked best uh, the bit where he's gone to Indonesia at the age of 10 he learns what it means to be in a country where uh, oh well let's see that was the, the time let's see Jakarta Sukarno all those terrible things he was there with his mother and his stepfather uh, his mother's second husband and God knows he learned what it was all about, and he learned, too, uh, what it is to be black in America. Uh, I keep thinking, yes, that his his era, his time, I had thought would be, uh, it would be a Creole nation by the turn of this century, but that has not happened yet, absolutely not. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to skip all this stuff about uh, about uh, the gulf between romance and accomplishment. Uh, <laughs> this is fascinating stuff. Um, to compare that inauguration with the one coming up on Friday doesn't make any sense to me at all. You can compare some things, you know... Uh, <laughs> But there's not apples and oranges we're dealing with here. Uh, uh, I remember during the campaign with Hillary and uh, uh, that man and Trump. Uh, it was just a. It, it was not the sort of not the sort of comparison you could make. It's a false uh, false comparison. Uh, in any case, uh, the thing I wanted to. Uh, read to you. There's so much stuff in here. I'm just overwhelmed. Uh, the stuff about Bob Dylan, yes, and his heritage. He's got himself a literary prize and he it's as original to have a songwriter get a Nobel Prize as it is for America to have a black president. Yes, indeed. Uh, all these what's the word? Uh, uh, breakthroughs, changes, uh, I have two chapters here um, on the Black Panthers. Wow. Uh, in front of me, I have the Black Panthers newspaper. Fifty years, folks. Fifty years of uh, history again. Uh, I remember taking the Black Panther newspaper into my classroom. I made trouble for myself. In the current New Yorker, 
January 16th. There's a profile about a Black Panther. His name is Albert Woodfox, and he he lived in isolation longer than any other American. <laughs> he became a Panther while he was in prison. Most of the time was spent in Angola. Uh, check it out. It's called Surviving Solitary. The man is just turned 70. Absolutely amazing story. Uh, longer than any other American. Surviving Solitary, a profile in this week's New Yorker. Uh, <laughs> he has a, a remarkable face. I cut out the picture, put it in my file. Yes, how does it feel to be free? Free at last, free at last. Then I have a pile of uh, articles here about Barack being black enough or not black enough. <laughs> Yes, that was all about yes, the Panthers and Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois said the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line. Uh, so interesting. Uh, there's a section of the bridge, this big tome by uh, David Remnick, in which he discusses Jeremiah Wright. You remember Jeremiah Wright. Now, he was not a panther, but he certainly was a, what is that, a sprawling, profane bear of a preacher given to Afrocentric Bible reading some of them. <laughs> anyway, Barack Obama originally wanted Jeremiah Wright to deliver the invocation, you know, when he was inaugurated. No way. Jeremiah Wright was his longtime friend and pastor. A couple of days before the inauguration, Obama's aides learned about a forthcoming article in Rolling Stone called Destiny's Child. Mm-hmm. Okay. The article was written by a respected young journalist, Benjamin Wallace Wells. It was extremely positive, yet it quoted Jeremiah Wright saying, Racism is how this country was founded and how this country is still run. We are deeply involved in the importing of drugs, the exporting of guns, and the training of professional killers. We believe in white supremacy and black inferiority and believe it more than we believe in God. We conducted radiation experiments on our own people. We care nothing about human life. <laughs> if the end justifies the means. And, and, and God has got to be sick of this S-word. <laughs> anyway, uh, the article in Rolling Stone went on to use uh, neo-Tom Wolf punctuation to render the propulsive style of Wright's preaching. Uh, it was no exaggeration, actually, uh, in writing about uh, Jeremiah Wright's importance in the life of Barack Obama. 
the author of the article, Wallace Wells, concluded, This is as openly radical a background as any significant American political figure has ever emerged from. As much Malcolm X as Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Wallace Wells went on to point out that Jeremiah Wright was hardly an incidental figure in Obama's life, that Obama himself had described how he affirmed his faith in Wright's church and how often used his pastor as a sounding board. Uh, the obvious worry was that voters would assume that Wright's politics and outrage were a mirror of Obama's true positions and feelings. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, ouch. I, I think uh, that chapter needs more study. I, I, I don't know uh, what's going to happen after this Friday, but nothing would surprise me. Uh, I guess Obama said that he, uh, yes, he meant no disrespect to nobody. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Jeremiah Wright finally determined that the sermon quoted in Rolling Stone had been delivered 14 years earlier in Washington at a time when the Reverend Bernard Richardson was installed as dean of the chapel at Howard University. Wright says that at that event he wanted to challenge Richardson to lead a prophetic rather than a priestly ministry at Howard. Uh, you know, make it like it was when I was there in 68. Okay. Uh. <laughs> anyway. Uh Oh, boy, the scandals, the scandals. And the white Southern Baptists, dear me, I wish I had time. I get so, so worn out trying to figure out how to synthesize some of this material. It can't be done. Everybody see that movie Lincoln? There's a section in Remnitz's book about Abraham and uh, Mary Todd Lincoln. And uh, not just the inauguration, but their behavior in the White House. Uh, ah, no slaves in the White House, but there was a woman, a black dressmaker. Uh, you'll find her, well, mentioned. She's a minor character in the movie, Lincoln. Uh, Lizzie was her name, Elizabeth Keckley, born a slave in Virginia. Anyway, a fascinating individual, yes. <laughs> Yes, she left behind a memoir called Behind the Scenes or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House, which in its way stands with the slave narratives and memoirs that make up the core of early African-American literature. Just like a sojourner truth and other slaves who gained their freedom and became authors of narratives of their lives, Keckley wrote to assert her literacy, her history, her status as a thinking, feeling being. Anyway, more of this. I had a look at that book and I haven't finished it. Uh, interesting woman, her relationship 
with Mrs. Lincoln, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, <laughs> is fascinating. She describes Lincoln taking his wife to the window and showing her the insane asylum uh, down the street and telling her that if she didn't behave, <laughs> she'd wind up there. Yes. Never mind. Uh, I hope I have time to tell you about Barack Obama's very feminist interpretations of his mother's life and his uh, his pain at losing her. My gosh, uh, Barack Obama's mother is uh, so much younger than I am. What a loss. I'll be back on the air again next Tuesday. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, what the hell? Skip it. I'm going out of town. decades, the KPFA First Voice Apprenticeship Program has invited women and people of color to become radio producers. It's one of the only programs in the country that broadcasts the voices of people who are traditionally denied the radio waves. As an apprentice, you will be trained to write, edit, and produce radio that speaks your truth. Your voice will be the instrument of change that you want in the world. For more information on how to apply, call 510-848-6767, extension 235, or email us at apprenticeship at kpfa.org.